invite you to open your Bible with me this morning to the book of Hebrews chapter 13. Hebrews 13, you might note we're slowing down a little bit. That's because I'm enjoying this book so much I don't want to see it end. Uh, But also there's so much here as the writer is applying all the wonderful truth uh, that he has been talking about in the previous chapters. And so it's just, it's really important for us to take our time. Uh, So let's go to Hebrews chapter 13. As you're doing that, just want to encourage you again to join us Wednesday night for prayer. Uh, if we're going to be a Christian church, we have to be a praying church. And so um, just want to just really encourage you to come and join us for that. And uh, if, you, if I could just ask personal privilege for your prayers as well, I've got a huge a month coming up. Uh, at the end of this month, uh, I've been invited to Brazil and uh, Uruguay uh, for our mission field there. So I'm going to be doing three conferences in two weeks, which means I have 10 uh, sermons to write on top of what I'll be doing here. And so it's going to be a big production month. So I'm just, uh, if, if you would just pray for clarity, for uh, that I don't panic, because uh, it's not very productive, and uh, that I've just, just uh, the Lord would bless. Uh, I want to be a blessing to the brothers and sisters uh, in uh, Brazil. I'll be at, two, uh, at the seminary there where Eber Campos, if you remember Eber, I'll be uh, doing a seminary uh, uh, conference there, and then also up uh, farther up north, Charles Oliveira knows some people up there, and and then down with uh, Mark Richline in Montevideo. And uh, so just ask for your blessing on that. I greatly appreciate it. Let's give our attention to God's word this morning, Hebrews chapter 13. We're going to begin reading uh, verse 1, and we're going to be looking specifically at verses 11 through 14. Let's give our attention to God's word. Let brotherly love continue. Do not neglect to show hospitality to strangers, for thereby some have entertained angels unawares. Remember those who are in prison as though in prison with them and those who are mistreated since you also are in the body. Let marriage be held in honor among all and let the marriage bed be undefiled for God will judge the sexually immoral and adulterous. Keep your life free from love of money and be content with what you have. For he has said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper. I will not fear. What can man do to me? Remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. For here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Let's ask the Lord to bless his word. God in heaven, we believe these words are inspired by the spirit of of God and that that same spirit is able now to come and give us understanding. Uh, So we pray, Lord, you would do more than we could ask or imagine. Uh, May we hear the voice of Jesus today. We give him the praise in Jesus' name, amen. I'd like you to imagine uh, the last day of your life And you knew it was the last day of your life. And however many years and days there were behind you, you knew there were none ahead of you. That this was the last day you would be here on this earth. And imagine someone coming to you, maybe a family member, friend, maybe your pastor, elder, and uh, imagine they ask you this one question. If they said to you, friend, tell me, as you look back over the span of your life, what was it all about? What was it for? All the, all the, the busyness, the joys, the sorrows, the successes and failures, all the time that you had here on planet Earth, what was it, what was it really about? What, what was it for? How would you answer that question? 
Maybe some of you would think, uh, well, it really was about my family, about you know, loving my family, providing for my family, enjoying my family. Maybe some of you would say, well, I, in truth, I, I think it was just about trying to be happy. I, was, I, wanted to, I wanted to be happy. I think a lot of people would say, you know, I never really thought of that. I never really asked the question, what's this all for? What's it about? I just, I just live my life, do things that people do. Got married, got a job, had kids, retired. That's just what people do. Well, one of the uh, precious things about the gospel and about this letter is that it continually is reminding us what the Christian life is supposed to be about. The Christian life is supposed to be about Jesus. Uh, he's been talking about Jesus the entire letter. We see him. Uh, we look unto him. Let us go to him. The Christian life is in its essence a life about Christ, about about knowing Jesus, about hearing Jesus and following Jesus and loving Jesus and abiding in Jesus, being engaged in the mission of Jesus, looking forward to seeing and being with Jesus. That's the essence of it. And the goal of it is then to, to be with him forever. That's what we're looking to, longing for. We're, we're looking seeking the city that is to come. We have that here in verse 13. But that's been popping up all over, particularly in the last few chapters. Christians are people who are looking for a city with foundations, chapter 11.10. Seeking a homeland, 11.14. Desiring a better country, 11.16. That's the goal. And so the theme of our text this morning is that the essence of the Christian life is going to Jesus... And the goal of the Christian life is to, to know him and serve him because we're seeking to be with him. And so this morning we're going to be um, just studying these, these very basic concepts, but seeing how profound and important they are. As, as uh, the writer, remember, is calling us to walk a pilgrim journey. We're on our way to a destination. Last week we noted that uh, Jesus is the rock we stand on, uh, the wonderful, immutable, unchanging nature of he, Jesus. He's the same yesterday and today and forever. He doesn't change. And so that you can go to the, to the Jesus you read about in Scripture, and you can go to him in prayer, knowing he's, he's the very same today. And that we feed upon the grace. We need sustenance and nourishment for this journey. We're not going to make it in our own strength. We need to be strengthened by grace, the grace that is in Jesus. Well, and now as the writer is moving forward, he's just reminding us that this pilgrim journey is a continual process of going to Jesus. Going to Jesus outside the camp, bearing the reproach that he bore. Now, what does that mean? Uh, and that's, uh, that's what we're going to be looking at this morning. I have, you have an outline in front of you. The first point is the nature of Jesus. The second point is the nature of discipleship. I, you can, I think it, it would be better to say the work of Jesus and the work of disciples, if, if you're keeping notes. The work of Jesus. That's what the writer gets to in verses 11 and 12. Talks about the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin or burned outside the camp. Now, what in the world is that about? Well, remember, he's writing to Jewish believers, Jewish Christians who, who um, had been brought up in the Jewish faith. And so these words would be intuitive to them. He doesn't need to explain what he's talking about. They know what he's talking about. And he's, he's, he's referencing um, something that happens, we can read about it back in Leviticus 16, if you just want to put a, a thumb in your Bible back in Leviticus 16, he's talking about the Day of Atonement. Now, it, if we could just, it would help us if we could get in our minds what it must have been like for an, a Jewish Christian, the, the audience, the original audience of this letter. To be a Jew is not just an ethnic identity. It's not like being Dutch uh, or Italian. That flavors maybe a little bit about the way we think about life, but to be a Jew you utterly defines 
who you are. It's your entire identity. It, it shapes the way you think. It shapes the way you dress. It shapes the food you eat. It shapes your calendar. And all of that you see rooted in God's commands to Moses back in the Old Testament. So to be a Jew is, that's how you know your place in the world. And that's how you gain a place in the world to come. It's everything. But when they became a Christian, believing that Jesus was the fulfillment of all the Old Testament, Jesus was the Jewish Messiah, when they became a Christian, they lost their Jewish community. They lost that place. They lost, in a sense, that identity. They were expelled, kicked outside the camp. And they're tempted, some of them, to go back into the camp. Back to what's familiar and tangible and secure and comfortable. They just, they're tired and they just want to go home. It's very understandable. But the writer, see, is, is saying something very significant. He's saying, but that's not your home anymore. It's not your home. Jesus isn't there. Jesus is with you outside the camp. And so he's referencing Leviticus chapter 16. If you're there, you can turn to uh, verse 27. This is about the Old Testament Day of Atonement, which was the highlight of the religious festivals. It's, it happens once a year. And it's the day, the only day, when the high priest is allowed to go into the most holy place. Remember the tabernacle. Boys and girls, uh, uh, there's, a, there's an outer court. And then there's the holy place. And then behind the curtain where the Ark of the Covenant is, there's the most holy place where God himself uh, is present. And nobody is allowed in there except the high priest once a year. And he goes in and he takes blood that's been sacrificed, the blood of a bull and a goat, and he sprinkles that on the mercy seat, on the, on the Ark of the Covenant, uh, uh, signifying that blood is required to atone for sin. Okay, that's what's happening. And But what happens to the the bull and the goat after they're sacrificed and the blood has been poured out. Well, for some sacrifices, the people and the priests could eat the, the, the flesh of the, of the bull and the goat. They could take the meat. But not this one. This sacrifice is completely devoted to the Lord. And so we read in verse 27, if you have your Bible open, Leviticus 20, uh, 16, verse 27, and the bull for the sin offering and the goat for the sin offering whose blood was brought in to make atonement in the holy place shall be carried outside the camp. Their skin and their flesh and their dung shall be burned up with fire. And so they were completely devoted to God, burned up with fire outside the camp. And the writer's saying that's what's happened to Jesus. And he's... he's referencing something that they would, they would be aware of. You see, the Old Testament faith has, has borders and boundaries clearly defined. If you want to think about the Old, uh, the Old Testament system in, uh, 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 um, as a series of concentric circles, right, boys and girls, if you throw a, a pebble in the pond and then you see these circles kind of come out from that, well, that's, have that in your mind. And in the very middle of those concentric circles is the most holy place. That's where God dwells. That's the, the innermost in. You don't get more in than that. And then the next circle is the, the holy place. And um, whereas in the innermost holy place, only one man, the high priest, and only once a year is allowed in, in this second ring, well, other men, the priests, are allowed to come in. Every morning they would come in, they'd light the candlestick, or they'd keep it burning, or they would put incense on the altar of incense. The priests are allowed into the holy place. And then the next circle would be the, the, uh, the courtyard of the tabernacle. And Jewish men are allowed in the courtyard as they come and make their sacrifices. And then out, the next ring would be the camp itself, and, and Jewish people, those who are ceremonial, uh, ceremonially clean, they dwell there in the camp. And then, and then the next circle is outside the camp, and that's for people who are unclean. And so uh, the, the Levitical law has things, if you touch a dead body, well, you need to be outside the camp until you're made ceremonially clean, and you're allowed back in. 
So you have these concentric circles, and, and the whole thing is based on inside the camp is ceremonial cleanliness and consecrated to God. It's a, it's a holy place. And outside the camp, well, that's unclean. That's under the curse of God. So every Jew understands sort of that's how the world is structured. The question then is, what is Jesus doing outside the camp? Why is he outside the camp? Well, the Jewish people who crucified him thought they knew the answer to that question. If you would ask the, the, the Jewish leaders, uh, what is Jesus, the Son of God, doing on a cross, a Roman cross, outside the gate of Jerusalem, outside the camp? And they would say, well, because he's a, he's a cursed, condemned man. He's a blasphemer. And this is what the Bible tells us to do to blasphemers. It says, take them outside the camp and kill them. That's what the Bible says. So they would, they would tell you why, what he's doing outside the camp. But see, by referencing Leviticus 17, uh, 16 here, the writer is saying, um, no, 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 Jesus isn't um, simply outside the camp as they bearing the curse. He's doing that. But he's participating. He's enacting, actually, the ultimate, once-for-all, truly sin-atoning sacrifice. That's what he's doing. This is Day of Atonement stuff happening. Jesus fulfilling what we read about. See, this is the secret, in a sense, uh, that the religious leaders didn't understand. C.S. Lewis would say this was the deeper magic they didn't know. Because what they thought they saw was a condemned, cursed man who wasn't wanted by the world or by God, just dying the just death that he deserves. But you see, what was actually happening is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, as the great high priest, is offering up a sacrifice to God, his own body, and doing that in the most holy place of heaven. That the, the innermost end of the tabernacle and the temple, the, the most holy place, that was just a replica, a shadow of another most holy place, the very presence of God in heaven. And Jesus was there. That's what the angels saw. They saw a magnificent high priest offering up his own body and his own blood for sinners there in the very presence of God to actually sanctify them. That's what we read in, in Hebrews chapter 9, 26, if you still have your Bibles open to the book of Hebrews. Look at 9, 26. <laughs> 9, 26. Look at, look at verse 24 just quickly. Christ has entered not into the holy places made with hands, not tabernacles and temples on earth, which are copies of the true things in heaven, but Jesus has entered into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God on our behalf. Look at verse 26. He has appeared, appeared once for all at the end of ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. It's exactly the same thought we have here in, in 1312, that Jesus suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. That's the Christian message. That's why Jesus came to make holy people who are by nature and by sin and by choice unholy. He came to cleanse sinners. That's why he came. And so he's crucified among the unclean in order to make them clean. He hangs between two criminals, joining the human race in its crimes against God, bearing the, the, the punishment of those crimes in order that God can freely justify the ungodly. That's the essence of the gospel. That's the work of Jesus. Now... What's the work of disciples? That's verse 13. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the, the reproach he endured. Three, I'd just like to break this up into three bite-sized pieces. The work of disciples is, first of all, embrace the Savior. Therefore, let us go to him. And that therefore, again, is a really significant word. 
It means on the, on the basis of all that God has actually accomplished in Jesus Christ for sinners. Therefore, because Jesus really has paid for sin, blasted a door through death, opened the way to everlasting life, therefore, because Jesus now invites and calls us to come and enter in, to come and live, therefore, let us go to him. You see, if, if the gospel wasn't true, there, there's, there's nothing for us to do. But if the gospel is true, if God has actually done all of this in Christ for sinners in this world and today, well, let us then go to Jesus. That's the great invitation of Jesus himself, isn't it? In Matthew chapter 11, come to me. All you who are weary and heavy laden, come to me and I will give you rest. And friends, you, you can't you can't. Be a Christian unless and until you've done this. You cannot be a Christian simply because you went to church or because you go to church. The question is, have you gone to Jesus? Have you gone to Jesus? Let us go to Jesus. This is what disciples do. It's their core conviction. It's, it's their chief desire, their truest identity. It's what a believer says to himself every day. Let us go to Jesus. With all the fears and the failures, with the confusion, with the sin, let us go to Jesus. I will arise and go to Jesus. That's what we tell ourselves. It's what we say to our family and our friends. Let us go to Jesus. It's our invitation to those we meet in the world around us. Come with me. Let us go to Jesus. That's what disciples do. It's the first work of discipleship. It's going to Jesus because Jesus is life. Secondly, we don't simply embrace Jesus, but we embrace his mission. Let us go to him outside the camp. Let's go to him outside the camp. Now, what does that mean? It means that Jesus calls us to follow him as he suffers and dies outside the camp. And remember, what is he doing there? Well, we, we discovered what he's doing there. He's accomplishing the gospel mission. He's doing what the Father had sent him to do. To give up his life as a ransom for many. To gather uh, his people to himself. He's accomplishing his mission. And the writer now is saying to this early church, let's, as disciples, follow him and engage in the mission. Now, I want you to think again how this would sound to these early Christians, these Jewish believers. Go outside the camp? I mean... What they're missing is the life they had in the camp. They're missing the, the safety, the familiarity, the family, the comfort of the Jewish community. And now, and now the writer's saying, I, I know, but, but that's not your home anymore. That's not why you live. Let us go to Jesus outside the camp. Bruce says there, there outside the camp stood Jesus, calling them to follow him. Inside the camp, they felt secure, psychologically insulated from the world outside. But Jesus claimed the world outside for himself. The future lay not with the camp, but with the Gentile mission. There's a world that's dying. There's a world that needs to hear the gospel. As the Father sent me, so send I you. You see, just as Christ went outside the camp to accomplish his gospel mission, the gospel now calls us who have come to Jesus to go outside the camp for gospel mission. Jesus has not called us, friends, to make ourselves comfortable while we wait for his return. There's a world out there still that needs to hear this gospel message. There are elect sons and daughters of God out there still that need to be brought home. 
And it will feel uncomfortable and it will feel unfamiliar and at times unpleasant, but it's the call of a disciple. F.F. Bruce again says, time and again in the history of the people of God, a similar call has come when a new advance must be made into the unknown and unfamiliar to occupy fresh territory under the leadership of Jesus. There is nothing static about him or his cause. To stand still is to fall behind. There's a mission. To come to Christ is to be called to a mission. And that's where we're going to feel the reproach. So the third work of a disciple is to embrace his shame. Let us go to him outside the camp bearing his reproach. I hate reproach. I, um, I hate being mocked. I hate being shamed or ridiculed. I have a profound dislike of being disliked. If someone uh, is upset with my driving, which happens from time to time, Either I'm going too fast or going too slower. Um, well, that bothers me when someone screams at me when they drive past. It, there's, a, there's a wound to that, and that, that's just a very little thing. I want people to like me, and you do too. I don't think I'm much different. But that's not the call, and we need to wake up to that fact. As I look at the church today and in so many places and waves caving into the principles of this world, including, and maybe right now it's sort of the tip of the spear, the, sex, the sexual ethics of this world, I think this is at the root of the problem. We don't want to suffer reproach. We are addicted to approval. And the world doesn't approve of the Christian sexual ethic. It doesn't approve of the exclusivity of Jesus as the way and the truth and the life. And that no man comes to the Father except through him. That's an abhorrent message to our culture. It, is, it seems incredibly intolerant, incredibly narrow. And so we're tempted to sort of bypass it. <clears throat> It's very tempting to live in this world as stealth believers. We believe what we believe, but we just hope no one notices. As long as we can have the life we want to have, we can have our family, our possessions, our comfort, as long as we can make our life in this world feel like home, we'll be content. But friends, that is not the mission. That's not Hebrews chapter 13, verse 13. The mission calls us, of Christ calls us into the, the mission field of Christ. And if we're going to grow in gospel fruit, if we're going to see men and women and boys and girls coming to faith in Jesus Christ, being brought out of darkness into light, we're going to have to have this heart shift away from primarily desiring comfort and security and uh, sort of the West Michigan middle class dream. And we're going to have to move to desiring Bearing the reproach of Christ. Now, how, does, how is that going to happen? Because I can't make it happen in my own heart, much, make, much less make it happen in your heart. I don't have any power to do that. And again, I want you to think about the challenge this is for first century believers. They live in an honor society. Do you know what that means? That means that honor is life and shame is worse than death. There's nothing worse than shame. So how in the world will you move people in that cultural context to embrace reproach, to choose shame. And that's what we have. There's a choice to be made. Let us go to him, says, um, let's go. And there's a choice to be made, and that must be made. How do you get people to prefer shame? How do you get people like us who like our comfort? We like what's familiar. We like what's safe. We like it a lot. 
How do you move people like us and make it so that we choose and prefer to go outside the camp for the sake of mission? How do, you, how do you get people like us to embrace the unknown, embrace the unfamiliar, and embrace the unpleasant? And the answer is, it all depends on what you are seeking. The writer says, let us do this for, because, since, we are seeking the city to come. And that's the disciples' desire. Here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. The Greek verb here that is rendered seek, it's not just looking for. It is, it's about longing. It denotes striving with your will because it is your desire. You want to. Why do professional athletes choose certain diets that, that aren't much fun and choose rigorous physical training that isn't much fun? Why do they prefer that? Because they're hungry for something. And that's what this word is about. It speaks to what you hunger for, what you've committed yourself to because you earnestly desire it. And so, you see, it answers the question, what do you want? What are you looking for? And, and friends, this is so critical because if what we really want, end of the day, just you and the Lord, if what you really want is comfort and security and a place in this world, you will not be able to choose reproach with Jesus. You won't be able to. If what you really want is a nice life, a nice family, a nice home, and a nice retirement, if that's the plan, if that's the vision, if at the end of the day that's what your life is about, when push comes to shove, you will not be able to choose the reproach of Jesus. It will simply cost too much. You will choose, and you daily choose, whether you know it or not, what you most truly and highly value. It's the way God made you. And if what you, what, if what you really value is your life in this world, then when the persecution comes, and when the choice has to be made, you will, like Lot's wife, turn back. But see, if you're seeking the city to come, if you long for what this world can't afford, if, if you hunger for the glory of Jesus Christ, if you want to dwell in the presence of God, then the reproach of Christ is inestimably valuable. It's, you see, that's what you find in Scripture. People are not choosing to bear the reproach of Christ because it is the unpleasant but necessary, unfortunately, price you have to pay to get to heaven. They choose it because they value it. That's, look at chapter 11 in, uh, in Hebrews. It's exactly what you see happening in Moses' life. Hebrews chapter 11, verses 24 through 26. By faith, Moses, when he was grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing, such an important word, choosing, rather to be mistreated with the people of God than to enjoy the fleeting pleasures of sin. So Moses, he stands, he's got a choice to make. He can either suffer with the slave people of God, or he can enjoy the privilege and pleasures of the ruling class of Egypt. He can have it all, anything his heart could desire, or suffer the shame and the reproach of God's people. And he chose the shame and reproach. Why? Verse 26, he considered, valued the reproach of Christ greater wealth than the treasures of Egypt. So he looked at these two things. And he said, what is the most value? What is the greatest treasure? All of the gold and silver and pleasures of Egypt 
or the poverty of the people of God. What's the greatest value in Moses is I choose this. I choose to be mistreated and beaten and mocked, to be, to be part of the slave nation that has nothing. That's what I want. Why? Moses, can you imagine his friends? Have you lost your mind? You don't need to do that. So who cares if you're Jewish? We don't care. Come and join us. And Moses says, no, you don't understand. I'm looking for a reward. I'm looking for a treasure. And it's not found here. This is not a lasting city. I'm looking for what lasts, what endures, what has the glory of God on it, what has life in it. I don't want to throw away my life on these fleeting, puny treasures of Eden. Who cares? When I can be part of God's mission in the world and, and, and live for the glory of the God who reigns in heaven, who made all things. You see, what, what are you looking for? What are you seeking? If you're seeking life in this world, you will not be able to value, you see, the shame of belonging to Christ. It will feel like dying to let go of Egypt. But if you're looking for the city to come, if you're, if you're looking for the glory of God, if you want the presence of God himself, then you will embrace the cause of Christ. You'll embrace the shame of Christ because it will feel like living. So how does God move us? People who fear shame to joyfully choose shame. What he does is he gives you a new heart with new affections so that you value different things. And the way he does that is he opens your eyes to see the glory and the beauty and the worth of Jesus. And Jesus becomes so incredibly precious to you. As he, as he dies in your place and calls you his brother and makes you his friend and invites you into the family of God and, and, and even claims you as his bride. You see the glory of Jesus so that it becomes an honor to bear his shame. That's what happened to the disciples. It, Acts 5.41 is such an amazing verse. Acts 5.41. I'll just quickly give it to you. The disciples, remember these are the guys who when Jesus was hung on that cross, naked and, and bleeding, where were they? Gone. They could not, when push came to shove, they could not suffer the shame. Not that shame. They couldn't, they, they couldn't give up their life for Jesus. And yet, days later, few months later, they are ministering in Jesus' name, dragged in front of the Sanhedrin, beaten with sticks, flogged so that their backs are ripped open and bleeding. And this is what you read in Acts 5.41, then they left the presence of the council rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer dishonor for the name. What happened? Well, the cross happened, the resurrection happened, the ascension happened, their eyes were opened to see the glory of Jesus, and suddenly, you see, it became an honor to share his shame, to suffer his reproach in the cause of God's mission. How would God, why would he let us do this? You have to see Jesus, friends, in all of his glory, in the glory of the gospel, so that, so that you want nothing more than to know him and to belong to him and be part of his cause in the world for the glory of God. And how do you do that? How, how, do, we, how do we, practically speaking, choose the reproach of Christ? We intentionally choose to live for his mission. This helps me understand, there's such a dynamic here. So in, Paul has this saying, I want to know Christ. Boil it down for me, Paul, the apostle says, this is what I want. I want, to, I want to know Christ and the fellowship of sharing in his suffering. And that, that verse has often been a little confusing to me. What does it mean? I want to know Christ and the fellowship of sharing in his suffering. Well, you see, it, this helps us. Paul wasn't seeking the suffering of Christ for the sake of suffering. 
He wasn't even actually seeking suffering. He's seeking the fellowship of suffering with Christ in the call of the gospel. Just quickly, sports analogy. Most football players don't enjoy getting hurt. You know what they love? They love the fellowship of the game. They love being out there with their brothers and engaged in this epic Meaningless contest. <laughs> what do they miss when they leave? Do they miss the hits? Do they miss the bruises? Miss the broken bones? That's not what they miss. They miss the locker room. Paul says, I want that. I want the fellowship of suffering with Jesus for the sake of mission. That's what I want. Because it's the most meaningful contest in the history of humanity. I want, the, I want it to know the fellowship of, of joining with Jesus, my suffering Jesus, as he battled to the death for the cause of God, for the glory of God, and for the benefit of sinners, that they might be sanctified and brought into the presence of God. That's what I want. And friends, that's what we should want as well. The fellowship of joining Jesus in the gospel mission and gladly bearing the reproach. Let me close with just very quick couple applications. I just want to appeal to you, each of you individually, and just ask you the same basic question. What are you living for? End of the day, what's it about? What are you hungry for? What do you worry about? What do you grieve when you lose? Is it money, comfortable middle-class life, sexual pleasure, family? We are free to enjoy all of God's good gifts. This is not a call to monasticism. But what are you hungry for? What must you have in the days that God gives you here on planet Earth? And that if you don't have, the rest of it just doesn't matter. Is it Christ? Is it Jesus? And are you hungry then in Jesus? Are you hungry for God? Are you hungry, hungry for God's glory in the world? And, and that the only way you can imagine your life mattering is if it matters for that. To know Christ. To make him known. Then let us go to Jesus. Day after day after day after day, go to Jesus. And if you've never done it before, do it today. What are you waiting for? Secondly, let me address just us as a body, a congregation. I believe this text and these truths is, is a call from God for us as a church body to move forward in gospel mission into the unfamiliar, the unpleasant, the uncomfortable, and to, and to engage in the Gentile mission. Remember, the Gentiles were just people outside the camp. We sort of have a ministry to people in the camp. We're well-known in, in Reformed circles. God has blessed us to just enjoy together and grow deep together in the gospel. But what would it look like for us to choose to move outside of sort of just our circle and to move into a lost world engaging intentionally in gospel mission, what would that look like? And I don't have all the answers to that. I, I just believe that the answers won't really matter until it's what we hunger for. And when we hunger for it, because we want to know Jesus Christ and we want to join him in his mission. And we want to be a part of his cause, which is both to build up the saints and it's to gather the lost. And we can't imagine wasting our life doing church and not doing that. When that's our hunger and when that's our prayer, we, and we, we beg that God would give us the privilege of being a part of that gospel mission, then I think the Lord will bring the answers. But this is a call for us to prayerfully say, oh God, give us that hunger. Don't let us waste our church life with what we can settle for and what we're comfortable with.
drive us outside to Jesus to embrace his mission and gladly suffer his reproach. And so finally, let me just encourage you to embrace then you, yourself, and you and your family. Embrace a lifestyle that is mock-worthy. Embrace a lifestyle that is reproach-worthy before this world. Give away money to gospel mission that could be used for vacations and retirements and additions. And give it to Jesus. Lots of it. Sacrificially. It makes no sense to the world. Spend a whole day each week in worship. When you could be making money or pursuing a hobby or spending time doing things that make much more sense to the world. One day out of seven, just give it away. For the cause of Christ. Talk to people about Jesus even though it might be uncomfortable and, and maybe they'll, they'll mock you for being a Jesus freak. That's okay. They mocked him too. Say no to things that make total sense to this world. Say no to sexual immorality. Say no to, to entertainment that's just rot or does nothing for your soul. Say no to seeking your life in the American dream of consumerism and eroticism and consumerism. Just say no. No to the cultural pressure to embrace its values and its principles and its agenda. No. Because you're saying yes with your time and yes with your money and yes with your body and yes with your heart to what is unseen and to what is eternal, to a city that is to come. You're not a prude. You're a passionate seeker of joy. Friend, wouldn't it be great if on your deathbed you were able to say... You know what? By God's grace alone, that's what my life was about. Underneath all the fits and starts and the sins and the wandering and the backsliding and the confusion, underneath all the fear and all the failure, there actually was this one thing by the grace of God. I wanted to know Jesus. And I wanted my life to count for him because he died for me. And I want the days and the years. That, that's what I wanted. I wanted it to cause for his glory, for his cause, for his kingdom. And I was looking for a city to come. A city with foundations. The city of God. So I could be with him. And you know what, friend, here on my last day on earth, I believe that Tonight, I will be with him. Wouldn't that be wonderful to say? May God grant it. Let's pray. Well, God in heaven, thank you for your word. I thank you that you invite people like us to something so great, so magnificent to something eternal, not because of anything in us, but because of your love, your grace for sinners. Father, we confess our worldliness where we're hungry for so many things that don't last and don't, are not worthy of our time and never satisfy. Father, I pray that this morning someone here who has never surrendered to Christ, might sense they're, they're missing something, something incredible, something satisfying. And that you would draw them today to cry out to you. And Father, I pray for those of us who we're all caught up in our day-to-day -day life, day-to-day -day struggles and pains, fears. I pray, Lord, you would lift our eyes to see what our life is really about. It's about Jesus. It's about his cause. It's about the city that he's building, the one that's to come. And so, Lord, I pray that our desires would be ordered by that one great passion, to know Christ and to make him known. Lord, I pray that you lead us as a congregation, 
You've not called us to settle for what we know, what's familiar, what's comfortable. You've called us to look and see men and women and boys and girls who are lost without Christ, who need to hear about Jesus. And so, Lord, I pray that you lead us into that future. Let us, go to, let us go to him, to Jesus, outside the camp, gladly bearing his reproach because we're his disciples and he's our life. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Let's sing together, there is a higher throne as we think about the city to come. Blessing the benediction of your reigning living king. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up the countenance of his face upon you and give you his peace. Amen.